Welcome to How Did You Manage That, a podcast where we talk to music managers about their journeys, the lows, the highs, and everything in between. I'm Sophie. And I'm Ali. This is a podcast all about managers doing it right now. Some of them are working with huge platinum selling global artists. Others are working with breaking new acts, sometimes without a label in sight, and maybe without even the need for one. Either way, they all have an amazing story to tell, lessons to share, and most importantly, an undeniable passion and dedication to their artists and the music. And that is why we do this it podcast. It is indeed, Ali. And I think it's fair to say that the manager that we have on this week more than likely falls into the platinum selling global act category. Just a bit. Just a bit. In so fact, even so it feels even bigger than that, if it can be bigger than that. Our guest this week is Adam Alpert, who looks after the huge, massive dance act, The Chainsmokers. Now, if you've never listened to commercial radio, if you don't go to festivals, clubs, bars, shops, well, actually, I've just described 2020, so maybe not. But, um, you know, if you never do any of these things, then you probably haven't heard of these guys, and I'm sure you're in the minority, but the Chainsmokers are huge. I mean, they have sold millions of records worldwide. They've played all the festivals you can think of, and they've even dethroned Calvin Harris. But there's a bit more about that and what that means in the interview. We spoke to Adam in June when it was in the thick of lockdown globally, and things were really taking pace in a bad way in New York, where Adam is based. We talked about the year, how he and his artists and their businesses have been coping with, I guess, the new normal. So here it is. How did you manage that with Adam Alpert? So we are here today with Adam Alpert, manager of, well, probably maybe the biggest dance group in duo in the world. I think it might be fair to say, the Chainsmokers. But also Adam runs Disruptor Records, Disruptor Management and Selector Songs, which is the publishing arm. Is that right? That's correct. Um, and that's home to obviously the Chainsmokers, Vanek, Dove Cameron, Lost Kings, a guy called Matthew Young, who we've just had a conversation about how obsessed I am with him. Um, and obviously you've got your fingers in lots of pies doing lots of things. Just some stats I wanted to read out for the Chainsmokers. It's quite mind blowing. They've won a Grammy Award. They've won two American Music Awards, seven Billboard Awards, nine iHeartRadio Awards. And I don't know if this is, what's the word, not very very British to talk about money because we don't tend to talk about money in Britain, but apparently they were the highest paid DJs dethroning Calvin Harris after six years, which I think is quite an accomplishment because I'm sure Calvin is not cheap. So welcome to the podcast, Adam. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. So um, I wanted to kick off with saying that I read in Billboard magazine an interview with you and you said that we are always thinking two or three chess moves ahead Mm -hmm. or something that you said. so with that in mind, and obviously what's going on in the world at the moment, how have you and your team and the Chainsmokers guys sort of navigated all the changes that are happening with obviously the pandemic and live changing and writing sessions being cancelled and, and lots of other stuff being turned on its head in the music industry in general? How have you guys sort of been coping and adapting to those changes? Yeah, absolutely. Um, probably the most ironic thing ever is that at the end of of 2019, um, Alex and Drew from the Chainsmokers and I, you know, kind of sat down and looked at the last, um, you know, five plus years of their career of putting out a song almost every month and playing 250 plus shows a year 
every year of their career and made the conscious decision to um, give everyone a break from the chain smokers and um, kind of go away from social media and go away from playing shows and go away from releasing music and um, kind of hibernate and make their fourth album. And so in February, they wiped their socials and they um, put up an away message that said, we're going away to write this fourth album and you're not going to hear from us until it's ready. We had no idea that there was going to be a pandemic, um, but some would say that that was me uh, having a little bit of ESP thinking two or three moves ahead. Um, and so they've been tucked away for the last seven months, um, or six months, um, just writing and writing and writing and writing and writing and writing. And, um, the, the other great thing that kind of happened from that was whilst all these, um, things were happening in the world, it gave them the opportunity to observe what was going on because normally they're going at a hundred miles an hour. They've been going at a hundred miles an hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for eight years. And so it really gave them time to see um, what was going on in the world and how to help use their platform and their audience um, and their means to um, get involved. And so they've been, very, very, very philanthropic over the last six months. Um, you know, starting back from the Australia fires. Um, and um, I think it's really sh kind of shaped who, you know, the adults that they've grown into recently. And um, it definitely has had an effect on the music. And the music is the most mature. Um, somewhat edgy music they've ever made. So I'm really excited to, uh, to get back to putting it out when that will be, I can't really say. Um, but, uh, that was us thinking two or three chess moves ahead. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> you were so, literally so, so psychic. psychic. Not even chess moves, yeah. just psychic. That's what happened. <laughs> yeah. How, um, pandemic aside, how do you find that period? I mean, it's, I guess it's a little different for a dance act, but how, do you find that kind of off-cycle period as a manager? You know, do you see that as a moment when they're away writing, goodness knows where they're going to do that? Do you see that as a bit of a time off or is that when you recalibrate? What do you do personally? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, at this point, I have a label with eight artists on it. We manage seven artists. We have five writers that we publish. And the Chainsmokers have a bunch of businesses um, beyond music that I run for them. We have a film and television company um we have a tequila company uh we have a venture capital fund we, we have a lot of businesses that i run with them um and so i've definitely had you know those businesses don't close when they go into the studio those businesses continue um we actually have a movie that the guys scored and, it, and and that we executive produced that's coming out in theaters in america on august 7th called words on bathroom walls so there's been a lot of prep for that. And I've just mm -hmm. over the last couple of days been making sure the trailer is absolutely perfect and all the music is cleared properly and mm -hmm. things like that. So it, it never really slows down. Um, I've actually signed a few artists uh, for management Excellent. during the pandemic. 
Um, we just signed um, Gashi, um, who is um, a um, incredible pop artist slash rapper who has an 80s project coming out. We just signed um, Dutch DJ Don Diablo for oh, management. Nice. Um, so, you know, we're, we're definitely building new artists, making plans. Um, but I think, a, you know, a lot of my days is figuring out touring and when that's going to come back and mm, prepping, yeah, for to- prepping for 2021. Um, all my artists have routes, um, our tours routed for 2021 mm-hmm. and um, figuring out when we can announce those and when promoters are going to be making deals and what's going to be possible is definitely takes up a lot of, a lot of my day. Um, Definitely. So yeah, no slowdown for the uh, for the off cycle <laughs> period. It gets worse if anything. <laughs> yeah. So um, you said the guys went into the studio, so you didn't have any tours or anything to cancel, so to speak, for the guys because they weren't touring Ooh. anyway. No, the only thing that they had was their Vegas residency um, at the Win, which they were going to have to still do, but that was the only thing, fortunately, that we had to cancel. That's that's quite lucky then. <laughs> no, <I'm Yeah>. um, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's worth mentioning. I there's been some some work on the philanthropic side that that has taken up a lot of our time when when the when the pandemic first hit um, and PPE was uh, scarce and people couldn't oh. get protective equipment. Um, Alex and Drew were adamant about finding ways to help, and so for about two weeks we had to source um, N95 masks um, and try and find them wherever they are and whichever I was calling different countries and um, China was, uh, you know, having all different shipping issues. Mm -hmm. And um, we were able to locate and buy um, 20,000 N95 masks that the guys paid for. Um, And they sent 10,000 of those to New York where things were the worst and and where Mm -hmm. Alex and I are from um, and 10,000 to Vegas to a hospital in Las Vegas, because that's almost like their second home. Um, and so, you know, like that took like, you know, so many phone calls of me, like trying to figure (laughs) this out, not get price gouged, find out what were real, what were fake. Um, so a lot of extracurricular activities during the pandemic. Wow. Good on them. Yeah, it was an amazing moment in those first kind of couple of weeks and months when agents suddenly became like epidemiologists when you spoke to them because they were following it so closely. They were like, yeah. the peak's going to hit here. We're yeah. going to get back here, you know. And different people, you know, I know a few tour managers in Scotland, for instance, who put their their skills and abilities in getting people places and logistics into amazing action for the, the National Health Service. It's, it was a pretty amazing thing to watch, all the good stuff that yeah. came out of that really yeah. shitty situation. So... Obviously, talk about the pandemic too much, but things mm. have changed, right? No clubs, no tours, no festivals for this year, probably, if not going slightly into next year. We obviously don't know how, how this is going to play out. How do you think that is going to affect, let's say, dance music, the sort of music that... Are, are the boys making different music based on what is going on in the world and that will reflect what will come out? will obviously there's music that maybe people listen to in the club or when they're out with their friends is different to the music they listen to at home or when they're working from home so if more of the sort of listening environments are becoming more insular with less people 
how will you adapt to that? Will you adapt by looking at things like technology and how you can give a live experience online? How how are you guys and, and the guys thinking about adapting to that moving forward? Yeah, I think it's different for different artists. Uh, you know, every artist is different. I think um, true artists don't change what they make um, uh, based on strategy. You know, their art is their art. They're influenced by what happens around them and what happens in their life. Um, so I don't think, uh, you know, a true dance music artist is going to not make dance music because there's a pandemic going on. Um, but, um, but this is happening, you know, and it is affecting people. And I think that there is a tone for the music that's being released now. Um, and, you know, people are not releasing party music right now. You know, um, and, you know, in addition to the um, postponement, rescheduling and replanning of tours, there's been a massive postponement, rescheduling and moving of releases. Mm -hmm. um, and that was complicated even more by the Black Lives Matter movement um, and the different restrictions that. Um, digital partners put on who they would be promoting and when. And so, you know, just, just for June alone, we at the label, we've had to move releases, push releases, you know, re, re, rejigger releases, certain developing artists, um, you know, developing artists are, are hit the hardest mm -hmm. by all this, Absolutely. you know, because um, they need to be out there on the road touring to support their music. I don't care what anybody says. Um, they have to be touring. And so, you know, some of our artists who have EPs done and planned and ready to roll out, like they need, they need to get out there and support that music physically in order to, you know, make it to the, to the following pieces of music. And, and, and there are artists that are able to write and record great songs and put songs out one at a time regularly um, with less pressure. And then, you know, there are artists like pop artists who every mm -hmm. song is supposed to accomplish something or have a certain reaction to kind of get them to the next level. Um, so it's been complicated, you know? Yeah. Um, and so as far as like what music, you know, people are going to be making, I think, yeah, they'll be affected by the times, but I think human nature is to be, um, is to enjoy music and have fun with music. And I think that type of music certainly will come back in 2021. I had an interesting conversation the other day uh, about the US radio market. And it's a, mm -hmm. this problem is quite similar in the UK as well, that since the pandemic hit, the, the rotations are getting much smaller. You know, there's a lot less opportunities. And you hit that nail on the head for a younger artist who's maybe just at that level where they can start thinking about going to radio in America, the beast that that is. Yep. Those slots have gone. But inversely... The people are looking, you know, the audiences are looking for familiar familiarity. They're looking for songs they know. They're looking for things that are a bit more optimistic. So, you know, maybe with an act like the Chainsmokers, that kind of leans in their favour in many ways because of the level they're at. But yeah, it's those it's those early opportunities that there's just no space for, which is absolutely which is a real tough thing to navigate. Yeah, really absolutely, is. absolutely. Um, I was going to ask a little bit about collaborations. Yes. And how you feel, because obviously the guys have done so many huge, massive global hits with massive names. Is that something that comes as a thing from the artists themselves? Or is that, from your experience, more something yourself or the label have helped 
happen or is it a case-by-case basis? Um, it's a case-by-case basis. The best ones come artist to artist. Um, it's always just the recipe for success when an artist uh, either meets someone through like directly or has a mutual friend or just, you know, DMs that each other and touches a vibe with each other. Those are always the best ones. Um, sometimes, you know, it's uh, you need um, a relationship or a manager or a label A&R to kind of, you know, start the Band-Aid and get it, mm-hmm. get that introduction made. And then, you know, you get those two artists together and, and magic happens. Um, that's what happened with um, the Chainsmokers and Coldplay, for example. Yeah, of course. Um, that... The, the way that that collaboration happened was um, when the boys played uh, Coachella in 2016, they, we were talking about who we could bring out as surprise guests that year uh-huh. um, because surprise guests at Coachella is, is tradition. And uh, they gave me this insane list of massive, massive, massive <laughs> names that were all but Good impossible. Luck. Bring um, people back yeah. from the dead style hologram names. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, you know, and what does a good manager do? A, ma- a good manager actually goes down the list and starts calling yes. people. And so, <laughs> and so I, uh, I called um, Coldplay's management and I said, you know, the boys would love to have the band come out um, at Coachella. You know, they already are playing Coldplay in their set, blah, blah, blah. And they said, sorry, not available. They didn't, oh, say, no. No. They didn't say no. They said not available. Meanwhile, we play every fest. We basically played every festival every year or every other year. <laughs> so uh, despite not having Coldplay at Coachella that year, and we had a million amazing surprise, surprise guests that year, I didn't give up the surprise guest uh, quest. We did. We do <laughs> surprise guests at all at all our big festival shows. Um, and so, the next festival was I think it was Bonnaroo. Hey, is Coldplay available for Bonnaroo? Not available. Hey, is Coldplay available for ACL? Not available. Hey, is Coldplay <laughs> available for Ultra? Not available. <laughs> that persistence. And I, kept, yes. and I kept being persistent, and I and I finally got. Um, uh, you know, I finally spoke to uh, Phil Harvey, one of Coldplay's managers, and we were just talking about business and the music industry and what's changing, what my experience was. And I just threw out, you know, why don't you see if Chris might want to get into the studio with uh, Alex and Drew? And, you know, he kind of just like played it off like, yeah, 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 whatever. Like thinking to myself, like, it's never going to happen. And, um, Phil called me back about three hours later and said, can they be at the studio in Malibu tomorrow? No. And I said, and I said, they will be there. And I called Alex and Drew <laughs> and I said, you're going in with Chris Martin tomorrow. You have to be at this address. And uh, they wrote something just like this that day together. Wow. Unreal. <laughs> I love that that persistence paid off. You know, yes. I'm sure if like a young manager's there going, right, how do I even get a start? They'll look at someone in your position and go, oh, they got it easy. It just comes to them. Now nah, you've yeah. got to hustle. You still yeah. got to hustle. You do. At all levels. You do. The curse of management. <laughs> yes. Yes. But collaboration now is, collaboration now is, um, it's almost, it, it, it's everywhere. Like the, yeah. almost every song has features, you know? And so, that is becoming more of a chess game um, than ever before. 
Um, and it's uh-huh. about timing. It's about relationships. It's about Spotify monthly listeners. It's about Big labels thing. clearing other their artists on other labels music. And it is a wild, wild west. <laughs> are there any, obviously you don't have to name them, it's totally fine, but as the boys reached a certain level, the level that they've reached now as artists, were mm. there any big artists come to you for collaboration and you, they, you were like, that's probably not going to work, no. <laughs> yes, yes, there were. There were some, um, there was, this is what I'll say, there were some massive, massive, female pop artists that wanted to feature on Chainsmokers songs. And we just didn't think that it was um, the right match, you know, and, and what I will, you know, contrary to that, there were some big, big artists that the Chainsmokers wanted to work with that didn't want to work with Mm -hmm. them. And, you know, I Mm -hmm. think a lot of it has to do with timing and the song itself. And, um, and there are variables, you know, there, you know, uh, BB Rexa, who the guys did a song with last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've been friends with BB for, since they were both nobodies, you know, just trying mm-hmm. to make something of themselves in the industry. And the guy's first hard ticket show in New York at terminal five, I forget what year that was BB opened for them, you oh, know? Yeah. And, and I think it was, I think it was like, we all knew it was only a matter of time before they did a song mm-hmm. together, but it just had to line up the right song, the right time. And that song became a hit. And maybe if they had done a song together earlier, it wouldn't have, you know? So I think Mm -hmm. that a lot of it has to do with timing. Um, Mm -hmm. The other thing that the guys try not to do is do collaborate with people that have collaborated with others, which is also very, very difficult. I mean, they definitely have done songs with people that have collaborated with others, but they definitely try to be the first um, Mm -hmm. to collaborate with somebody. Um, And we've had so many amazing collaborations and it's really fun for me because I get to work with the managers of the other artists um, and kind of win together, which is really fun. Um, You know, I, I, you know, most recently uh, they had this, um, hit with uh, Lennon Stella called Takeaway, um, which, you know, I had so much fun working with her and her team. Kelsey Ballerini, they had a, a big hit with, who is incredible. And her manager, Jason Owens, amazing. You should definitely have him on this podcast. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it is fun. I guess that's the thing. Nobody sees that behind the scenes assault of emails that come in when you've got to sort out all those splits, you've got to sort out where the credits are going, who's got <laughs> what, and then the, the, the hardest thing. I suppose maybe a little different if you're on, on, on top of the game like the Chainsmokers, but it's fitting into release schedules. Yes. Once these guys have written an amazing song together. It's like, the oh, hardest, no, 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 sorry, the we're picked up for... Yes, the, the, honestly, <laughs> the hardest part of it is getting the features labeled to clear the artists. That, that's <laughs> always the hardest. Definitely. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about you as a manager. Um, sure. Do you see yourself as a bit of an all-rounder or do you get more excited by the marketing side or the A&R side? How, how, would you, how would you see yourself? I see myself as a manager and I run my record label like a manager. And all the artists that are signed to the record label um, that have their own managers, I try to act like a co-manager for them or an extension of their management team. And so does my whole team. Um, 
we want to break artists. And so we help with everything. Of course, we want the music to um, be very successful and we want every artist to have hits, but we focus very much on building the artist's fan base um, and getting them ready for success. Um, mm-hmm. So that when that first song that raises its hand comes, they're ready for it, you know, and it's not just a song on a million playlists with yeah. hundreds of millions of streams. Um, we're very, very focused on getting our artists to tour as much as possible. I, I just, I can't stress that enough. And mm-hmm. we try to help, especially the young managers with the young artists. Uh, we try to help them learn how to tour their artists properly and strategically and at the right moments. Um, so I like to say that I'm a manager's record label. Um, and, um, but we do, I mean, A&R songs are, I would say 50% or more of my days is, is dealing with songs um, and, uh-huh. and putting people together and sending songs around and uh, working with my A&R team on giving our artists the best opportunities and the best feedback and, um, as much or as little creative um, feedback <laughs> as they want. Yeah. Is, is that where the publishing arm kind of came from, just by you doing that naturally? Or was that- yeah. I mean, honestly, I, I did it all at once because I wanted to do everything <laughs> because I started I started as a manager with the Chainsmokers and we did everything together. Uh, and so when I was fortunate enough to get um, invited to start a label at Sony um, by Doug Morris, I, I literally the next day went down the hall uh, to Marty Bandier's office at Sony ATV. And I said, I'm doing this management and record label deal down the hall with Doug. And I need, I need to be able to do publishing also because I want to be able to do everything, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I did that, um, you know, that was six years ago, but I did that with no real experience in publishing and um it's the best way yeah and, get stuck and, in. And, and i just didn't want to not be able to do something in the music mm-hmm. business you know i loved um that um you know i was there when the song was written and i was there when it was performed on a festival stage you know um so it's like it's creation court- to birth. it's corny but it's like from the session to the stage you know that's brilliant man yeah, yeah. And then you know that in turn then is going to empower the artists because you you know they they've got you've got their trust and then you're looking over all sides as a manager and not beholden you would hope yes. to nobody. You know? Yes, I think it's nice as well to have that. You said obviously you listened to the Jamie Oborn episode, but he was talking about how if other people don't get it or other labels or publishers don't get it, you now have to be like, well, we don't need them. Let's sign it in house and get it going. And it's really nice to know that you don't have to rely if you don't want to or don't need to on other sections of the music industry. If you have that all available to you, you can just start working the music, which is the most important part, right? Yes, and and I have a similar attitude, but on the label side, it's very much. Um, we're going to help you in all aspects of the artist's career. And we're going to, you know, put out lots of music and we're going to help you tour. And, we're going to, and this is our way. And if you, if you don't like our way, this is not the label for you, you know? <laughs> and, and that's the thing about Disruptor Records and the artists that sign to our label. It's like they're 100% in, you know, with the way we do things. Um, 
And if they're not, then it's just not the right place for them, you know? Um, mm. and, and, I, and they all love it and they're all very happy. So um, it's, it's great for us. Hey, sorry to jump in mid-conversation, but we're going to have a little break from the interview during the podcast right now to do what is becoming our new regular feature where each episode we partnered up with an amazing organisation called Small Green Shoots to get one of their staff to tell us about the best new music they are listening to on the office stereo right now. This week is the turn of Jonathan, so let's hand over to him. Hi, I'm Jonathan. I'm a social media and content producer at Small Green Shoots. And the artist that I would like to tip today is West London rapper Trench Maid. One of the reasons why I chose him was his versatility. If you look at his discography, you're not going to find much songs that sound the same. Each new song is a new genre and a new feel. Uh, you have upbeat, mellow, soulful, grimy, all that you need really. But he doesn't really lose himself. You can still find that kind of trench made imprint. Uh, what I would say is that his lyrics are very meaningful, or I would say introspective. Uh, he talks on everyday life that everyone can relate to, whether that be uh, relationships, uh, living in London, being a youth, uh, even to social media. It's something for everyone. The song that I would highlight uh, is his song called Focus, that has kind of like a garage feel, but he still has very meaningful lyrics. Here at Small Green Shoots, we help young people like myself uh, be immersed into the music and arts uh, in the hope that what they learn can help them be a part of the creative industry. You can find out more about Small Green Shoots on their website or on their social media platforms. That was great. Thank you so much, Jonathan. We will make sure that we check out Trench Made. And also a big shout out to Small Green Shoots. Now let's get back into the interview with Adam. So here's a, a question for you, like a sort of sure. would you rather style question. Sure. If I'm a young artist and I'm starting out, yes. would, or let's say if you were a young artist and starting out, would you rather have 50 guaranteed Spotify playlists sort of insertations or would you rather have 50 really good tour dates around the US um are the tour dates sold out because well, to have a show I know you mean but no <laughs> healthy let's say they're healthy the ticket sales are healthy like could some some states will sell out some they won't but they're healthy I would rather have the, the shows yeah there he is. Good, yeah, good, good. Because those are that's those are those are the fans. There is nothing more mm-hmm. powerful than a fan paying money to buy a ticket. You know, um, that's all lean forward. In streaming, there's lean forward and there's lean back. Playlisting is lean back listening. Um, there's no psychological effort being done mm-hmm. to hearing a song on a playlist. There's a lot of psychological effort and commitment to paying money to buy a ticket. So. I can do those shows and the playlist will, will come later. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Love that That's good. Um, in a similar vein, I was going to ask the kind of million dollar unanswerable question for the label or the publishing or artists you might manage. Yeah. What are you looking for? Just stuff that I'm, that I'm passionate about. My team's passionate <laughs> about, you know, we sign about one or two artists a year to the label mm-hmm. and it's, almost never like one or two people on my team liked it you know it's it's kind of like somebody found it 
somebody was passionate about it and then we all kind of just fell in love with the person and that artist doesn't even know that we're in love with them yet (laughs) you know and then and then we start meeting with them and meeting with the manager and, and, and diving in and we always try to be helpful during that process like we try to act as a resource for the manager and artist while we're trying to sign them um mm-hmm. because we don't want it to just be like a popularity contest we actually want to like start working together almost before working together so we we kind of like make our uh resources and ad- advice available to them so that they can kind of get to have conversations with us and look to us for help while they're independent um mm-hmm. but uh yeah, it, it, it's always artists that we're passionate about, and and that and, and that goes for for genres too. Like you know, obviously we have a few dance acts, and, and Chainsmokers came from the dance world. So sometimes people think mm-hmm. that uh, we're a dance label, but we're definitely not a dance label. We we have artists of all genres. We have a Latin artist. We have um, singer songwriters. We have everything so it's really just stuff that we fall in love with and are passionate about and you know so much of this industry is building a team of people um that are going to wake up every day and grind on you Mm -hmm. you know and that's what i tell all my artists when they're picking lawyers and they're picking agents and they're picking business managers and um, all the members of their team it's like don't look at the names on on the buildings just look at the people and is this person going to wake up and go hard on me because mm-hmm. they believe in me and, and they're passionate about the project um and so that's how we that's how we pick the artists that we go after so can we take it back a bit and could you tell us a little bit about how you started your career? I believe I read somewhere that you were originally just managing one chain smoker, not both of them. So how, how did that yes. come about? How did you meet? Was it Alex, I think? And, and even before that, what was your first job? Were you an intern in a record label? Did you have something else come before that? How did you get into this, this mad industry? Okay, I'm going to give you a story. I'm going to try and make it quick because uh, I'd rather talk about other things. But so basically, I graduated college and I and I wanted to be in the hospitality business. I was obsessed with um, restaurants and hotels and nightclubs and things like that. And I uh, fell into the job of being a nightclub promoter. Um, I, you know, I was I was born and raised in New York City, and after college. Um, lots of people moved to New York city after college in, in the Northeast and people sort of looked to me being the kid from New York city as to where to go and what to do. And I ended up becoming this big nightclub promoter. Um, and then I ended up running, um, a nightclub, um, and doing the marketing and promotions, uh, for a very, very popular nightclub in New York called one Oak. And, um, after about eight years of being out seven nights a week, um, you know, I was, I was growing weary, um, of it, but I noticed a few things at the time and I, and I knew that my next step was going to present itself, but I had no idea what it was. And I kind of noticed a few things happen all like in a very short span. And one was, um, I started to notice that people started to care who was DJing at, at our clubs. Um, like they would ask who's DJing and that would never be a thing before the DJ was tucked away in a corner and nobody cared who it was as long as the music was good. And people 
um, they always wanted to know who the entertainment was or who the DJ was. And that just wasn't a thing. It used to be about what was the newest club or which is the mm-hmm. club that celebrities go to and, and things like that. Um, and then I started noticing that social media was, was getting more popular in Facebook so that local DJs could, could build little fan bases of their own. And that's part of how people started to know who they were. And, um, and then house music was spilling in to America from Europe, David Guetta, um, people like that. And, um, and then I saw a DJ named DJ AM who's, who's no longer with us. I don't know if you guys know who that is, but he was DJ AM was like the most famous open format, um, DJ in America. And he started dating, um, Nicole Richie and they were on the cover of us weekly. And that was kind of when it hit me like, Oh, the DJ can be the next rock star. And so it was like a combination of all those things. And I had these 10, uh, 10 or so DJs that were DJing at my club that were the best DJs in New York city, because I had the best club in New York city at the time and they weren't managed and they weren't organized. They were just great at what they did. Um, but they did not make music. Sounds like an so artist I, to me. <laughs> <laughs> and so I started, and so I started, so I said to them, let me manage you. Um, I'll get you, uh, organized and I'll get you working more and making more money and, and so I started this DJ company on the side and I signed these 10 DJs and, uh, within three months, that company exploded. They were all like making 10 times as much money and working every night and flying around to Vegas and LA and Miami. And, um, I had, you know, through all my years in the nightclub business, I had known people in the nightclub business all around the world. Um, so I was able to use my relationships to get them. Mm-hmm. Um, working. And so I took the leap and I left the hospitality company that, that I was working for to do this management company full time. And what started to happen is I started to have almost a little monopoly in New York. Um, there were other companies like me, um, but it was very hard to get work if you were not managed by me um, or, or one of these other companies. Um and I knew the chain smokers, these two guys who were trying to throw parties and DJ them. And, you know, I had heard about them, but they, their success was very, very limited at the time, but they were fun guys and people liked uh-huh. them. And, um, and I'd see them around and I'd say, you know, you should let me manage you if you, you know, if you want to get big. And, um, sure enough, after a little bit of kicking and streaming, they kind of came to me and said, Hey, we, we realized we need you to be, to be our manager. And so I started managing them. Um, and three weeks after I started managing them, they had a falling out. And one of the guys said, I, I'm leaving the group. And I was so annoyed because I had spent three weeks telling everyone I know that these are the next big thing. And, uh, and then they broke up. Timing. Yeah. And so Alex just looked at me, um, and I think this was in about 2011 or 12. And and he looked at me and he said, I want to keep going. I want to find somebody else and I want to make dance music. Um, and so pretty annoyed he left now. (laughs) Um, I I honestly, like that's the common response, but I don't think he is because Mm. who they are now is not who they would have been if he he was there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and um, and so I had a, a, a 
an employee at the time who had a friend who was friends with Drew. And he told me, mm-hmm. I know this kid who knows this kid who's, uh, you know, can make dance music and he's 22 and he just graduated from college and he's uh, living in his mother's house in Maine um, in the middle <laughs> of nowhere. And I said, give me his number. And I got his number and I called him up and I said, you know, can you send me some of your, your music? And he did. And I called him back and I said, you know, do you want to come down to New York and maybe be in this DJ duo with this other guy? And, you know, you'll be DJing in nightclubs in New York City and making a couple hundred dollars a night into a 22-year-old who's in Maine, um, not really with any income. That sounds like winning the lottery. And so he got on the uh, $16 eight-hour bus from Maine wow. down to New York <laughs> and um, and I and I you know met him in my living room and I had him go out for dinner with Alex and um, that was it after that dinner they were the chain smokers and then drew moved to New York and um, they drew got an apartment that was the size of an iPhone plus and <laughs> And they locked themselves in that apartment and, and worked on music 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, and, and then we started making, they found their niche making indie band remixes. Um, Mm -hmm. And we would just talk about how to make fans and how to um, make fun content using their personalities um, on social media. In addition to promoting these indie band remixes Mm-hmm. And it just really took off from there. Yeah, the connection was there. So how? Because um, the first song I ever heard was "Selfie," I think. Yes, that was the song yes. I heard. And then when I heard them again, I thought that is an amazing transition from from what I know. Was when you had from "Selfie", selfie to was, "Roses." Oh, that was it. Yeah, and um, yeah. And how did you decide, or why did you decide for Selfie to be that first initial track? Because it obviously is really captured what was going on at the time and was obviously mm-hmm. a bit of jokey satire about everything as yeah. well. To then pivot into to Roses, into obviously, you know, closer in the massive hits. How did you sort of pivot in I'm that so, direction? I'm so glad you asked that the way you did, because the answer is we didn't. We didn't choose Selfie to be the first song, and we, and we didn't pivot. Selfie was, an insta- was a Facebook post. It was us thinking about funny things to do to get Facebook likes and showcase their personality. And uh, I had booked them a show at a big club in Miami called Live, which was uh, a really important, it still is a really important place for any DJ to play. And it was like a big break for them to be playing there. And they wanted to make sure that the show did well. And so they made this parody song as a joke to promote the show at Live. Um, and it mentions live in the song, which people don't even really know. Um, and the song just went viral. Um, at no time was that supposed to be the first original <laughs> song by the Chainsmokers. Um, but it did catapult them into fame and become a global smash for a novelty record. Um, and we did a big record deal and a big publishing deal off that. And they got to tour the world off that. Um, but the hardest thing that we ever had to do was... Um, I, you know, the, when I tell it, I say that, you know, if there was, you know, 5,000 Chainsmokers fans at the time, there became, you know, 50 million selfie fans. 
And so how do we convert selfie fans to chain smokers fans? That was what we were tasked with. And so people like to think that we did this novelty record and then had to figure out how to make, Mm -hmm. you know, commercial pop music, but that was not the case. It was, we were, Oh, they were always making songs like roses and, and don't let me down. And that was always the path we were headed down. It's just that selfie kind of happened off to the side and became bigger than everything else we were planning on doing. Um, so there was no pivot. Um, um, and, um, you know, people like to credit us with coming back after a novelty record, which is almost has never almost never been done before, but mm-hmm. that's not really true because they were always making the music that they wanted to make. It was just, they happened to by accident make this joke that became bigger than just a joke. It's almost like you've described what is happening with TikTok now. I feel there's all <laughs> yeah. these, these records out on TikTok that, you know, A&Rs are desperately picking up and trying to make the next big hit. And a lot of them are, quite novelty sounding because they're meant mm-hmm. to go with short videos in a short space and then sure it's really interesting i see labels now signing these big sort of tiktok tracks and i think how are they gonna are they just gonna keep releasing tracks for tiktok are they going to try and is that actually <laughs> the music they want to make it's really interesting but it's that's it's what happens i think sometimes with tiktok is almost what happened early days with the guys like you said which was that was not really the music they were ever making they just happened to make a, a bit of a fun video and it went viral right so i think that's, i think that's i think that yeah i think the difference is that they that, that kids are making music specifically for tiktok and and people are catering their music towards things that they think will react on that specific platform because of how powerful it is um the question of do they have staying power do they have um the musical talent to sustain a long-term career is, you know, TBD for everyone, you know, um, uh, you know, little Nas X had, had old town road and, mm. you know, no one knew if he would have what he would do next and how successful it would be. But I have to say the other music that he's put out so far has been relatively successful. So, um, you know, to his credit and, and, and to the credit of, of his team, um he's done it you know and 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 hopefully he'll be able to continue to do it um but i don't think it will be the same for everyone just uh just before we wrap up and uh you said you were you were happier talking about other people than yourself mm. zooming out a little yeah. on the industry what do you think are some of the biggest challenges maybe pandemic aside what are some of the biggest challenges facing the industry right now or problems that are not being addressed from your point of view um pandemic aside is very difficult because that's all (laughs) we've been thinking about that is true um Mm -hmm. problems in the industry um i i don't know i think that there's there's some there's some financial um inequality and unfair things that happen um i don't want to get too specific but i think that of course not you know in certain instances songwriters really aren't getting properly compensated um and that's a big problem um i think that there are some games that record labels play with each other um that are not very nice and 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 not in the spirit of 
success. You know, I, um, you know, I was talking to Julie Gruenwald the other day who, who runs Atlantic records and, and she's kind of like me. She, she was like, you know, cause one of my artists and her artists were doing something together. And she said, I just want everybody to win and your artist helps my artist and my artist helps your artist and everyone's collaborating and it's all for the greater good. And so I'm not going to stand in your way of, of doing those things with my artists, you know, and, and that's kind of how I feel about it. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's all, it's not so much tit for tat. Like it's all going to come back around artists from all these labels and management companies are going to work together and have to have the ability to freely work together without the deals and money and leverage and things like that um, interfering with, with that from happening. And, I, and I'm hoping mm-hmm. that with collaboration becoming such a co- so commonplace these days that um, people lighten up a little bit about um, how to make that happen. Mm-hmm. That's a really, that's a really good point. And I think, you know, the guy's career, you know, led by yourself that, that has opened up that collaborative world that we now live in, especially in the pop realms. You know, that I would say you guys are a big part of that becoming the mainstream. So that's nice. That's some that's some good to put out into the world. Mm-hmm. I like that. So <laughs> can we wrap up on a question that we're trying to remember to ask all the managers in this season? And it sort of came about partly because before we started recording earlier, I was talking to you about an, an, an act an artist that you have called Matthew Young who has a song called Collect which I was obsessed with last year for some reason I came across it through um actually Jen Feynman who works for you guys I know Jen and she sent it to me and I became obsessed with it and would listen to it in every Uber all over LA all the time and I thought to myself I wonder what is each manager must have what they feel is a record that didn't do what it should have done what I always call the big the most underrated records what would yours be? It doesn't have to be something you worked on. It doesn't have to be anything to do with your label. It could just be a track that you love. It could be an album track of an artist and you just think, that's such a good record. It should have been bigger or it should have been toured more or, or hit more fans. Wow, what a great question. <laughs> um, um, that's hard. I can definitely... Whew, I need to think about that one for a second. It doesn't have to be like your number one. It can just be one of many that you always think of as, as you know, an incredible record. And you think, God, that should have been bigger. I, there is a record by, um, by the Chainsmokers that was one of my, that is one of my favorites um, that, you know, I could see why it's maybe not like a ginormous hit, but I can't understand why anyone would hear that song and not think that it was incredible. Um, and that song is called push my luck off their most recent album. And, and, and there's no feature on it. Um, I really, really love that song. Um, and, uh, there's another one called honest that was on their, uh, first album. Um, but those two songs are like two of my favorites that I just encourage everyone to go listen to and, and hear, um, how good songwriters they are and um how it's not all about um big pop you know uh records um and uh um you know the only other thing i'll say for an artist outside of of mine um which i don't think it's fair for me to not mention them because they're my favorite band of all time is dave matthews band who 
<laughs> listeners can't yes. see, but there's a huge photo of them behind <laughs> me. Um, everything, they're the best band in the world, um, despite what any um, anyone may say negatively about them. Um, <laughs> and every album and song that they put out is just an amazing work of art. And, and I'm one of those fans that like, anyone who would say something bad about them thinks that they're not really hearing what that band is actually putting out there. Um, so um, I encourage everyone to go listen to Dave Matthews band with an open mind and realize why they're the best band of all time. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> That's an excellent answer. <laughs> Love it. It's a, it's a tough question, but yeah, it's an important one. I think Spotify have maybe somewhere started doing, maybe it's just the UK Spotify office, but there's definitely a playlist of like hits that should have been, so we should oh, have hits that and let them know. <laughs> Definitely. Anyway, nice one. Well, thank you so much for your time, man. Thanks for really having appreciate me. Appreciate it. Uh, good to meet you. Good to chat. All right. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye. So, what did we learn there, Ali? First off, shows over playlists, because that's where the fans are. Yes, indeed. And the thing I really liked about that interview, and it's the sort of theme that we're learning with a lot of successful managers, is they've all kind of worked in hospitality before. They've worked in clubs, they've worked in bars, and they've kind of been on the ground, sort of seeing stuff happen in real life. Like, I love the way he talked about how when he was working in clubs, he noticed that DJs were becoming the main pull all of a sudden, not like celebrities, not what the drinks were. And that's where he sort of clicked that he knew he was onto something and the guys could be successful. So it just kind of shows, doesn't it, that as a manager, you know, you don't have to go in as a manager. You can start on the ground, seeing what people listen to, what they dance to, what they live their lives to. And that's not just for A&Rs, but, you know, great for managers as well. Yeah, what a guy. It was really nice to hear his story. And big up to him and the artist he's working with for getting stuck in there in New York during the pandemic, buying masks and distributing to health providers and doing all the good that they could while they were all stuck in lockdown. We've definitely seen so many people in the music industry really have a boots on the ground kind of approach to helping others during the pandemic right across the world. And it's beautiful to see. I don't think anyone we've spoken to during this series since we've started back this year in 2020 has not been involved in some way in doing a bit of good. Yeah, absolutely. It's so good. And like you said, Ali, it's totally commendable. So once again, thank you so much for listening, guys. If you love this episode, please tweet, share, rate, review us, subscribe. Our social handle is at ManageThatPod. Yeah, that would be awesome. Even if you just tell one person you know that you think might benefit from hearing these stories, we would appreciate that. Big thanks as always to the MMF, the Music Managers Forum, who are our partners on the podcast and help us out promoting and shouting about the conversations. And until next time, we'll see you later. Bye.